and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern, and I am joined by Heidi White and our very special guest, Karen Swallow Pryor. Heidi and Karen, welcome back to the show. How's it going? Thanks, David. Going well. Deep into the summer. I love it. <laughs> um, is, uh, is Sense and Sensibility the kind of book you would normally read during the summer, by the way? It is for me, yes. So side, side question then, what makes for a summer book for you? Oh, um, <laughs> it's by Jane Austen. <laughs> by Jane Austen, um, I usually just like to read classic works of literature, novels that you know either I haven't read before, which isn't mm. the case here, but um, yeah. or yeah, just something that's for fun for me, but still a good work of literature. So for you, does that so, it means it was written before eighteen hundred, right? <laughs> Usually, yes. <laughs> no. yes. Anybody who's read before nineteen hundred for sure. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, although in read on in uh, on reading well, you have some twentieth century books. In yes, there. yeah. Two, two of them: The Great Gatsby and what? Cormac McCarthy. Right. Well, and then um, Flannery O'Connor's short oh, of course, stories. Of so yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. So I try to yeah. Try you try to, to stay well myself. balanced. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Heidi, what, what about you? What makes a summer reading for you? Summer, well, summer book I'm, you read during the summer. I'm kind of a weirdo. I completely understand why people do light reading in the summer. That makes a lot of sense to me, vacation, whatever. But I I tend to catch up on my harder reading mm. during the summer because I have some time and some space for contemplation. So right now I am reading Dostoevsky and Joseph Pieper in the Aeneid. So I do tend to read heavier, harder books over the summer because I do have a little bit more time and space to integrate those thoughts. I tend to do my light reading during the busier months. Yeah, when you're reading other stuff with your kids for school and all that anyway. So you you have to escape. <laughs> exactly. When I'm tired at the end of a long day, that's when I'm going to pick up an Agatha Christie novel or something that just kind of... Or Woodhouse. But over the summer, I do tend to read harder stuff. But that really is just me. I completely understand why the light read is a draw for most people. Are you saying Dostoevsky is not a light read? I am saying that. I'm going to take a definitive stand on that one. <laughs> Which one are you reading? Crime and Punishment. For the what number time? Actually, this is only my second time reading okay. Crime and Punishment. I've read Brothers K a little more often. I, I mean... I. There are people that love the Russians that are like my these are my heart books. I'm I'm really not one of those people. They are hard. They're mm. like gut wrenching for me. I can't lightly read them at all. Like they just and Crime and Punishment. I've only read once because I I wasn't ready for it when I read it. I mm. like ripped my heart out and stepped so on it. So you had so, to work back up to it. I'm coming back to it because the Russians are hard. They're hard to read and they're written very differently from a, a Western novel. And so I have to learn in some ways how to read mm. a Russian novel. What you know, You're looking for different narrative threads. You're looking for different symbolism, different ideas and worldviews. It's a different kind of book than the Western novel. And so mm. I'm, I'm, I want to get like kind of a, the furniture of the mind for it. So I'm coming back to it. Are you a Karen? Are you a Dostoevsky? Are you a big fan? Um, I am, but I would agree with Heidi. It's it's um, difficult reading for me. Uh, it is dark, and it is a different style. and And to be honest, like if if there were versions of Russian literature that 
kept everything the same except substituted like normal Western names like Peter and Paul, um, (laughs) I would find it so much easier. (laughs) Oh man, isn't that the truth? Those names are so hard. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you need like a a name map for those books because because they go by each character will be referenced by so many different names. Yes. Um, but I do that at home with my children as well. So uh, <laughs> I call them by multiple names. Fair enough. Um, okay. So we are here to discuss the first eight chapters of volume three of Sense and Sensibility. We have this week and then next week, and then we'll be done with the book. And then we'll do uh, your Q&A. Uh, we'll, we'll do the Q&A episode answering your questions uh, the following week after that. So you can start sending those questions in if you'd like. We can put the thread up a little early on the Facebook group. And of course, if you want to email us questions, you can do so by emailing us at closereadspodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter as well if you'd like to at closereadspods. Um, I want to also let people know who, who may not know about this yet. But for our Patreon listeners, we are going to be doing two special episodes every month. One is going to be on a short story and then one is going to be on a poem. Uh, we started with a short story at the end of June. So um, today being July 1st, we, it's a, it was a June story. And Tim and Heidi and I discussed Hemingway's story, A Clean, Well-Lighted Place. And it was a great conversation. So if you are a Patreon supporter, head over there and check that out. Um, you can learn more about that if you'd like to at patreon.com slash close reads. And then the other episode we're going to do, like I said, is on poetry. And what we're going to do is we're basically going to give ourselves 30 minutes to talk about a poem. So we're going to dive in and we're going to try to sort out as much as we can in 30 minutes, um, just sort of as the conceit of the episode to just sort of give us some structure and uh, to push us a little bit. So um, we're going to we're gonna see how that works. And hopefully it'll be more fun than it will be frustrating for you to listen to. Um, but those will be two bonus episodes. So again, if you want to check those out, you can go to patreon.com slash close reads. And... Um, just also to let people know, we do have new bookmarks, new new other close read swag um, coming soon that Graham's been busily working on. So um, all that's available, and we'll be posting posting all of that on the Facebook group as well, and sending it out via an email if you uh, want to um, check it out that way as well. So, all right, let's talk. Let's talk about um, let's talk about Willoughby and Marianne and Eleanor and all of our. Uh, well, I was going to say friends, but maybe Willoughby's not our friend. I don't know. Um, <laughs> This there, this is the um, this is the chapter where Willoughby, uh, the section rather where Willoughby does come back. In fact, the section ends with Willoughby's uh, return. It's the section where Marianne gets sick, and at the beginning of the section, at the beginning of Volume Three, it's the section where we learn about Edward and his mother's response to him marrying um, uh, Lucy. And so, right, I get that right. Speaking of names, it's Lucy, uh-huh. right? I just, yeah. I, I just, my brain just shut down there for a second. Um, <clears throat> so there's a there's a lot that happens in this section, and we'll touch on as much as we can. But I, um, I want to start with a question that was kind of bugging me as I was reading the first half of this section, and then we can get to some Willoughby and Marianne stuff later. But there's this, you know, the section that the I think it's the second or third chapter of this of this volume, and it's where Eleanor and Marianne are discussing what Eleanor had been through over the course of the last several months where, um, you know, stuff had happened with Edward and it had kind of fallen apart. And she finally confides in Marianne and Marianne says, you were so sad during all this time, but you never told me and you were there for me. And it kind of opens Marianne's eyes to what Eleanor had been through. You know, the conversation that I'm talking about, I think maybe Uh it's chapter two. Mm -hmm. So I was having, I was, it was kind of bugging me because 
I, I was wondering how I was supposed to read that section, given that, uh, given the satirical and ironic at times nature of this book. And I was finding that I was on such guard for the satire hmm. that in some ways hmm. it was distracting me from the, I don't know, the pathos of the moment, of the moment of this, of the scene between these, you know, kind of a moving scene between the two sisters. And so I was, I was thinking to myself, just how much am I supposed to take seriously the, the, the kind of drama and the moment of the scene that Jane Austen's giving us because it being a satire, we're constantly kind of, you know, I guess, like I said, on guard for how she might be doing a send up of characters or send up of scenes or conversations or um, really leaning heavily on the satire. So in a moment like that, how do you read the satirical part of this book into a scene like that? Uh, Karen, how do you do that? Um, well, it's, uh, this is again, why we have to be on our guard um, because it's not every moment is satirical at some points. Um, either, you know, the author or slash narrator's um, voice and perspective come in um, and, yeah, or, yeah. or the character, you know, the, the characters are, are, we're supposed to identify with them at that point as opposed to um, laugh at them. And so I think, mm. I think this is one of those passages. Where we're supposed to identify and not laugh at them. Right. How do you, um, I mean, is there a marker that you're looking for, think clues and hints that are that are confirming that for you, that this is the way Jane Austen wants us to read this besides maybe she just doesn't make fun of people as, <laughs> as heartily. Yeah. Um, I'm just, I'm looking for that. I don't, I don't think it's chapter two. I'm looking for it. You, you I, think know it what might be, I think it might be three now that I'm looking at it. Okay. Um, well, I think again, the, um, the words, the, the actual literal words that are used, I mean, the, the whether it's a word that we should be judgy about or a word that we should, um, that we should empathize with. I think that helps us a lot because we're, we're getting the perspectives of various characters all along. And, but if the perspective is one that tell, that is a vice or folly that we should be correcting, um, then it's probably satire. If it's one mm-hmm. that, that, you know, that we should empathize with and understand, then it's probably earnest. Hmm. Heidi, do you is the does this sort of question that came up for me? Does it just is? Am I just reading too much into it? Am I just being silly? You think, or or how do you read that? Have you ever had that frustration in a book like this? <laughs> I'm trying to picture myself being like, yes, David, that's ridiculous. <laughs> I'm setting you up for it here. <laughs> no, I think that you're asking just the right question. But I'd never you saying that both Karen and I went, huh? Because I, I take this scene completely at face value. I read it completely at face value. But now I'm thinking through whether that's because I've read this novel before and whether if this was my first read, that would be my reaction. And, but I think through this novel, you're waiting for this moment Right. Like I just, I so want throughout this entire novel for Eleanor to have a voice, for her to be able to actually say something that she feels Mm. to a sympathetic ear who can hear her and validate for her, you know, the, the crucible that she's been through and someone to say, I see you and I admire you for that. I want that. I want that for Eleanor every single Mm. time I read this, every time I watch the movie. I, I just, 
like long for that for her. Because that's what humans want, right? We want to be seen, especially if we have endured something hard very greatly for a long time. And so Hmm. when I read this, this part... I never have a satirical thought in my head. I'm just so grateful it's happening because it's such a catharsis to me as a reader. Hmm. It, you know, I don't, I don't know that I would say that. Like, I'm not saying that Jane Austen was did not give us a scene that offered catharsis. I think it was more right. like for me as a reader, I, because I was kind of on my guard and trying to look out for it. And maybe, maybe it's partly because I enjoy the satire when she does mm-hmm. make fun of the characters and things like that. So then as I'm reading it, that question is just in the back of my head. And it's almost like, I don't know. It's almost like when you watch a movie or something and the, the motion smoothing is on or something and it, and it makes it to like the, the seams start to show. I'm not saying Jane Austen's, seems are showing here, but maybe it's just the question itself for me is, is distracting me from what what is there, that it's just a, a purely personal thing. So, so then let me ask you this though, does yeah. that make it more or less satisfying to you that it's not satirical, that it's just heartfelt? Mm, that's a good question. Because um, I could see it either way. I could see it as like you're kind of waiting to poke fun at the characters, but then it ends up being this really tender moment of redemption for their relationship and that makes it better. Or it could be like, wait, this is kind of less satisfying because I wish it would have been a little bit more funny or it didn't, it felt out of place because it's not her usual voice. So I'm just, I don't know. I don't, I don't know that I, by the end of the chapter, I don't know that I, or the end of the conversation, however it broke, I don't, know that I thought to myself, well, that was less satisfying because I was asking these questions. Mm -hmm. Um, I think maybe it was like, I think after the fact I was able to, you know, compartmentalize it, I guess, or or however you put it. But there was, uh, I think it was during the process of reading it that the the kind of being on guard was maybe distracting in the moment. So Mm -hmm. if I go back and read it again, or I think about the moment, I'm like, you know, that was actually kind of a nice moment. (laughs) Good for them. Um, but at the same time, it, maybe it's just the process of being on guard that that was a little distracting. I, I'm curious to know if listeners felt that way. And I don't. Maybe I'm. Maybe that being. Maybe I'm thinking about the concept of being on guard or asking that kind of question about satire the wrong way. I mean, would you be would you be critical of that approach, Karen? That I was taking when I was reading. No, I mean, I guess this is um, this is where literature and its different modes can get complicated and nuanced. So, um, so even though this is a form, the whole work is a kind of satire, which is a comedy of manners. Um, it's probably more correct to say it's satirical than it's Mm. satire. So we we run into the same thing. Like we can read a lot of works that are allegorical or have allegorical elements without being allegory. Sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah, So that means that, I mean, now Pilgrim's Progress is allegory straight up right but but then there are so many other works that have allegorical elements but they aren't allegories so right um this is this the comedy of manners yeah. is a kind of satire but it's not you know it's not this isn't um everything in it isn't satirical mm. um and i yeah, think yeah. if are we talking about? I finally found what I was talking about. <laughs> yeah, maybe talking, we should define our terms here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> are we talking about chapter one of volume three? Okay. That's what I have. Yeah. 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 It okay. might be one. Yeah. Yeah. So where I was going in the wrong direction. No, that's, that's fine. That's fine. I was looking in three and four and okay, fine. So, you know, where Eleanor 
tells Marianne that Edward's engaged and about Lucy. And this is a long conversation. And for me, I think the clue mm. knowing yeah, yeah. that Austin is um, so centrally concerned with, with duty and virtue. Um, I love this passage actually where, you know, Marianne's she's Marianne's just, unbelieving like oh four months you've been carrying this burden and, and you've been so calm and you know she, she never knew it and um that she that eleanor loved edward so much and i love i had this line marked actually to to read um eleanor says in response to marianne when she says four months and yet you loved him and she said eleanor says yes but i did not love only him mm-hmm. And this, like, this is actually, I'm just thinking of this now. This line could actually be the, if you had to sum up the entire theme of the novel, this line could be it. Because, yes, Eleanor has loved Edward, and yes, she has suffered, and it's been hard, but she loves other people, too. She loves her family. She loves herself and her duty and her integrity. Um, This isn't just about finding your soulmate and abandoning everything just to be with that person. This is about loving properly, loving Mm. each one according and each thing according to how much we should. This is the proper Mm. um, order of our loves in an Augustinian way. And Mm. everything that follows that line in in that paragraph is a picture of Eleanor's virtue um, Mm. in the broadest sense of the word. And, I guess the specific situation. You mentioned before we started, you know, kind of officially recording how much how much you like the way Marianne. I think it was you, right? That how much the way she matures and changes throughout this section, or yeah. was that Heidi? Was that you? Okay, I did. Yeah, yeah. It was Karen. One of the things I I love about this section here is the way Austin seems to show Marianne changing in response to Eleanor's lines, like the one mm-hmm. you just read, because there's that bit a little bit before that where um, it says, at these words, Marianne's eyes expressed the astonishment which her lips could not utter, which is sort of like, Mm. in every way, the anti-Marianne that we've known, right? She she actually has no words for what she's thinking (laughs) now. And then it says, after a pause of wonder, she exclaimed. And that, Mm. like, that, the fact that she pauses before she exclaims, she pauses Mm. to wonder, is sort of... It, it is, there is transformation in action there. And then down below that, there's a bit where it says, Marianne seemed much struck. And then this like M dash. And then um, Eleanor continues talking. Um, and then, so as Eleanor's kind of revealing her heart to her sister, it, Marianne is changing. Mm-hmm. And it, it seems like as she's, she, and then it finally builds to this line that you're, that you're giving there. And I wonder how much um, the revelation of Eleanor, you know, Eleanor kind of confessing, um, and and sort of naming how much she loves her sister, mm-hmm. and how much how much that love gets displayed in action, really does sort of open Marianne's eyes and sort of transform her, because she's saying, you know, for Marianne, the, the the ultimate goal has been this, like, you know, um you only love one person that's you only have one person for the rest of you this sort of super romantic um vision of love right and eleanor is revealing to her here you know that her actions have ha, have displayed a more mature a more 
complex sense of love. And in and in the moment, we're seeing Marianne changing. It's I just love the way mm-hmm. Austin does that. There's like a there's a subtlety to that, and that's I think where maybe that's I think where I was taken out of my questioning of mm-hmm. the satirical part, and and the, the sort of catharsis does happen because we we do see the character actually changing, which is what we really want for her, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> we wanted that for the whole book, and so I stopped sort of being I don't want to say cynical, but I stopped sort of looking for that particular thing, and I was caught up. In, by the way Austin actually has her changing um, in connection with that, the way that Eleanor reveals herself. Heidi, you were going to say something. Oh, I, I just, I love, I love this whole chapter. This is my favorite chapter in the novel. I love this. And I love how it goes right into a satirical look at John Dashwood. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. There's the transition, right? That there's this heartfelt moment, that there's this growth in Marianne, that there's this catharsis for Eleanor. She's finally being seen by someone who loves her and needs her. And um, and then along comes John Dashwood <laughs> to assure them that indeed Fanny is okay. <laughs> <laughs> and he sounds like such an idiot in this whole section. And but Marion maintains her resolve and keeps her promise to Eleanor not to um to to talk too much and to show her emotions about it. And then I love the way that this chapter ends. Can I read it? I just love it. Um and my book it's page 252. I have the penguin classics. And um it says, Marianne's indignation burst forth as soon as he quitted the room. <laughs> and as her vehemence made reserve impossible in Eleanor and unnecessary in Mrs. Jennings, <laughs> they all joined in a very spirited critique upon the party. <laughs> and I love that. I love that ending to this, that, that the fact that everything is now in the open, that Marianne is growing, that she has actually held herself back and restrained herself to have good manners in the face uh-huh. of an idiot. Um, also, now Eleanor can talk about what she's feeling. And then it all ends in this like sweet little moment of like girl talk, of making fun of them, right? So that's like very human, but very connected at the same time. I just like that a lot. So it, I have a question though about this. You mentioned that it, you know, it does change pace quickly into this sort of make the satirizing of their brother. <laughs> so... Best. Does so? Does the could could I mean couldn't a case be made that this that 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 quick change of pace into the satire distracts from the pathos of their the moment that they had? I mean that it that it kind of takes the spotlight off of it and and I don't know just distracts from it or does it actually enhance it? I don't know, Karen. What do you think? I, I just think this is Austin's great gift to kind of just balance these tensions you know to 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 heighten the tension and and bring out the pathos and then to bring the relief at just the right moment Mm. um and yeah i guess that's the comedy yeah 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 and it keeps it from being sent over overly sentimental i suppose yeah Yeah, she's definitely not sentimental she can't do that in this book (laughs) 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 this is the book she really can't do be sentimental in (laughs) uh say more about that well, because that's the whole point of the book, right? Is to is in some ways to kind of mock that over sentimentality, that cult of sensibility. So she she does keep it lighthearted, but she gives Eleanor her moment to be seen, which I love. Hmm. And Marianne her great and that's why Marianne's never the bad guy, right? And and that 
there's plenty of foolish characters. There's plenty of characters that are not redeemed. But Marianne, in spite of us, in spite of needing to grow and needing to repent, she's not the bad guy of the story. Hmm. I've got a bad guy question that I'm going to ask later. So hold yeah. that thought. <laughs> um, we had to have to talk about um, some of the various possible, well, or the degrees of villainy, I suppose. Right. Um, I was going to ask something and I completely forgot what it was. So maybe we should talk about that now. Or maybe some one of you should just start talking for a while. Should say something. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's funny because as we're talking, I, I'm realizing that maybe maybe what's happening for me with that question about being distracted by the satire is that in some ways, reading for the show is a very different experience for me <laughs> because mm-hmm. I'm reading specifically to think of like, what are the questions that people who are listening might have as they're reading? And so I'm going back to the things that we keep talking about. And so maybe I'm just, maybe I'm being distracted by something that is not actually worth even thinking about. I don't know. Um, Maybe it's, well, not really, maybe it's not really a natural question to ask when you're reading. Maybe I'm the only one asking it is what I'm saying. <laughs> well, who knows? This is my plug when I say it's actually really hard to read and prepare questions at the same time. So good <laughs> says, job, David. <laughs> says, every te- says every teacher who's ever done it, right? That's true. Well, kind of to segue maybe into the yeah. villain question. Again, this is still in chapter one. Um, I, think, I think last week I talked a little bit about... Um, looking at the parallels, you know, parallel characters, plot mm-hmm. events and so forth, or maybe mm-hmm. that was a couple episodes ago. Um, but there's a line uh, in the middle of chapter one, again, when this conversation is just kind of beginning. Um, and this is from the perspective of Marianne. Um, Marianne for some time would give credit to neither, meaning neither Edward nor Lucy, I guess. Um, Edward seemed a second Willoughby. And acknowledging, as mm-hmm. Eleanor did, that she had loved yeah. him, and most sincerely, could she feel less uh, than herself? So that's a great. I mean, this is from Marianne's perspective, mm-hmm. but it's still one where we have to stop and say, "Okay, is this one of the places where Marianne is right?" Because she's not always wrong. Mm-hmm. Edward seemed a second Willoughby, so we're invited to make mm-hmm. that, that parallel. If we hadn't before, which we probably should have, but yeah. Um, Edward as a second Willoughby is an important question to talk about, I think, in, in the whole novel. Well, I was thinking about that because of how often... Well, I mean, if you include Colonel Brandon as well, it's like every other chapter, one of these men is wandering into the room awkwardly <laughs> and confronting Eleanor in some way. And she's just like, what are you doing here? <laughs> and it's like, it, it just, they seem to rotate through their, uh, their awkward entrances. Um, in fact, I think in this section, they each have... Well, maybe Edward doesn't. No, Edward does, doesn't he? I'm, he I'm does, trapped, yeah. definitely. <clears throat> and they all try to come explain themselves all the time. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, I don't think you need to explain yourself to me anymore. I understand you better than you understand yourself. <laughs> right. This could be, it would be a great Saturday Night Live skit to just, I don't know, to just parody these, you know, Eleanor and Marianne sitting around and these men walking in the door to explain themselves. <laughs> uh, one of the lasting images for the movie for me is... It's got to be when one of the scenes... I think it's Edward, the Hugh, the Hugh uh, Grant character, right? Um, uh-huh. Where he comes in and he can't. He does not know how to sit. Oh, he he yeah. kind of stands up and then he sits down again. He doesn't know how to cross his legs. That's one of the lasting images of the movie for me. Um, I remember as a, that was, I, was, I was taken by that as like, I don't know, a 12-year-old when I first... I don't know when that movie came out. But when I was a kid and, uh, and 
maybe it's just because I never knew how to sit in the room. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> what do I do with my hands? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. But uh, well, how do I sit in a room with women? Um, <laughs> We're very but, scary. Yeah, terrifying. Yeah, so. it, it, definitely. Um, so, so let, let's let's talk about that then. Be, this this comparison between Edward and Willoughby, and then Brandon. I guess we have to do to some degree because. At the, we get the, at the end of this section. I guess it's time to talk about that. At the end of this section, Willoughby shows up, and she thinks it's going to be Colonel Brandon showing up, and everything kind of builds up to that. And she turns around and it's, it says it was only Willoughby or, or Willoughby alone or something like that. <clears throat> and she she's basically says, "What what are you doing here?" And then he does. He kind of defends himself. <laughs> Is that's one of those scenes where I, I'm going to bring the question up again? Are we meant to take? Will it, I mean, is Jane Austen satirizing Willoughby there? Or are we meant to actually... Is she asking us... It felt like she was challenging us to decide how much we needed to pity him. Mm-hmm. Eleanor is being challenged to do the same thing, certainly. But as readers, are we meant to... Are we meant to go through the same sort of journey that she's going on in terms of interpreting what he means and trying to figure out if he's trustworthy and how much we should actually forgive him, let alone pity him? Or is he meant to be a truly pitiful character in a sort of satirical sense. Heidi, how do you how do you read that there and and how we're supposed to I'll just say it, how are we supposed to feel about Willoughby at the end of this section? Right. Um I to be honest, I, I don't see a lot of satire in this section, but I'm I I end my reading of it not knowing exactly what to think about Willoughby. So um I I think that this it, there is some some ambiguity that is left to the discretion of the reader and the interpretation of the reader um, on what to think and feel about Willoughby and different people are going to think and feel differently about him as a result of this section. And that, that creates, which I like that in a book in which I feel like there's a lot of binaries, a lot of like, here's how you should feel about this character. Mm-hmm. Like there's, I, I kind of get here, like there's like a little bit of a brush, breath of fresh air. If I was leading a book club, I'd be like, finally something to talk about, right? Like, <laughs> so this, I like that about this section, that there is something left to the reader to morally decide that hasn't been given to us in this novel. I like that. However, that being said, <laughs> I don't think that one of the options is to think, well, is to let Willoughby off the hook. Like he's not completely resolved by any means by the at the end of this, and I don't think that's even a question. Resolves or, or absolves? Absolved. Okay. I think I probably said resolved, but absolved. Like that, he's. She, they're not saying that just because he maybe really does love Marianne uh, the whole time, and you know, did this to get out of debt, blah blah blah, whatever. They're still not letting him off the hook. She's yeah. She they being. Uh, I might have mixed up my pronouns there. Um, <laughs> I don't mean to. We are not meant to. Yeah, no, I, I know that. We are not meant to. We're not given Willoughby as a, hey, should we just let him off the hook morally because he maybe truly loved Marianne? That's not one of the options. No matter how modern readers want to read this, it is. He is still a fallen man at the end of this. The question of whether or not he truly loved Marianne is open to interpretation by the reader. So Karen, can we... Um not let him off the hook and still pity him at the same time? Well, I, I don't know if, if we... I guess there's a little... I think it's more of a modern-day quality to 
pity Willoughby in this scene. Um, and I'm not saying hmm. that I don't, but yeah. I think what's happening. Mean, no, we- I know what you're accusing me of. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what to do with my hands. I'm going to swim in here. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, there's. <sighs> Uh, here's an, so here are some more parallels. So much of what happens in this novel leading up to this point is getting at the reality beneath appearances. Oftentimes mm-hmm. those appearances are kind of funny um, mm-hmm. because someone's made a mistake or there's, you know, or, you know, what, Mrs. Is it Mrs. Jennings or Mrs. Palmer overhears the conversation between Eleanor and Ker- Colonel Brandon and thinks that it's, you know, an engagement, but it's really just, uh, you know, talking about the um the accuracy uh that edward can have um so appearances are deceiving that's something that austin just seems to be saying over and over and when we get this story from willoughby we find out that there i mean there are many aspects of his story um that show how appearances have been deceiving right down to the to the heartbreaking letter he wrote to Marianne, which turns out to have been dictated by his, by his wife or at the time, fiance. Uh, um, and so in a way that makes it seem like, okay, Willoughby cared more than he appeared to in that letter. Mm. Um, mm. Yet I think in the moral universe that Austin is always trying to reveal to us, um, it's about the difference between appearance and reality. And that's what we have to get to before we can, you know, make any kind of informed choice about love or life or anything. So I don't know. It's, it's got me thinking this question. The reason I started thinking about pity is because of that line where um, it, uh, he's talking. Uh, well, basically she says, well, Jane Austen writes, well, sir, said Eleanor, who though pitying him grew impatient for his departure. And this is all. And then he kind of continues on with the story. So it seems like she's definitely asking the question of whether we're supposed to pity him because the the thought crosses Eleanor's mind or it's, or at least he is successfully, um, you know, he's at least, he's at least successfully, um, making her feel like he's not quite as bad as she did before, quite as bad of a guy. Hmm. Or, or finding some, or seeing how he is suffering too. Not that, that because of his choices, his bad choices, his choices that, that have hurt her family and her sister, he is also hurting. He is also choosing his own unhappiness. And that, I think she pities hmm. that he has destroyed his own potential for happiness as well. He's not quite so um, such a cat and a villain that he is just blithely out there sinning away with a trail of broken hearts behind him and he's perfectly fine. Like she sees that he's suffering. Now, that is very different from the way the moderns want to let Willoughby off the hook here from conversations I've had with modern readers when they think, oh, like I'm just... They, I'm so sorry because he loved Marianne so much and, mm-hmm. and what he blah, blah, blah. He's just a victim of this system, which I do think that, that, that there is some truth to that. I do think that Austin is pointing out that this system that they are in, just as much as the women are trapped, the men are also trapped. So, And yet he still made... He whore, still, yeah. yeah, he still he's, was... 
wrong. Right, but he's not a psychopath. Like he is uh-huh. he is himself unhappy and she sees that and pities that. Hmm. Right. And she still says at the end of this or toward the end of this conversation um, Eleanor says, you are very wrong, Mr. Willoughby, very blamable. Um, mm-hmm. You ought not to speak in this way, either of Mrs. Willoughby or my sister. You have made your own choice. It was not forced on your, you. Your wife has a claim to your politeness, to your respect, at least. So, I mean, I think you can yeah, feel yeah. pity for someone who is, who whose own choices and character have brought doom upon them. Um, but that's different from... I don't know. I guess just uh, what was the phrase earlier? I think you said yeah. letting him off the hook. Let him off the hook. hook. Right. Right. Well, I, I'm very one of the things that makes this scene so complex, much like this the previous scene we were discussing with Eleanor and Marianne, is the way Eleanor's um, perspectives, even her sort of um, her physical hmm. stances, change because the, what's the very first line we get at the beginning of the chapter? Eleanor starting back with a look of horror at the sight of him, obey the first impulse of her heart and turning instantly to quit the room. <coughs> Excuse me. And then throughout the rest of the conversation, or at least the first half of the conversation, we get a lot of um, references to her being impatient or wanting to turn away or speaking mm. reproachfully. It says uh, reproachfully is a word that's used a couple of times. Um, and then um, it says that at one point, um, hardening her heart anew against any compassion for him. And so that, you know, the first half of the conversation or two thirds of the conversation, there's a lot of that. But then after the bit where he talks about a dagger to his heart, it says Eleanor's heart, which had undergone many changes in the course of this extraordinary conversation, was now softened again. And then there's that kind of M dash, Emily Dickinson style dash there. Yet she felt it her duty to check such ideas in her companion as the last. Mm-hmm. Um, so, th- so the complexity of the conversation, I think, really does come in those moments in between, where, like, El- you know, whereas Eleanor is thinking about how to respond and how she's feeling herself respond in various ways at various moments, we as the readers are kind of forced to do the same thing as well, and that mirrors that previous conversation, I think, and that's there's a nice bit of characterization mm-hmm. in in huh. those choices that Austin's making, I think. Mm-hmm. No, that's good. Well, and to reference an earlier podcast, this is what, I, at least this is what I meant when I was talking about the drunk dial, that he <laughs> shows up and she thinks that Eleanor thinks he's drunk. It turns out he isn't. Although, we, what um, does he say? Maybe. Well, he's had a, a pint of pointer. <laughs> yeah. A pint of porter. A pint of porter with my cold beef at Marlboro was enough to overset me. And then... um. But I think that was sarcastic, right? Isn't he being sarcastic? All I had was a pint. Don't worry, I'm not here because I'm drunk. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I guess that. I think that. I don't know. I didn't really think about it. It's <laughs> 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 like I just thought he was being silly, you know. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, this is what we were talking about. This showing up because you can't really drunk dial when you don't have phones. So <laughs> he drunk visited. It is amazing that he spent the whole day 
he got up early in the morning and spent the whole day, right, riding to their house, thinking about what he was going to say <laughs> and whether this was a good idea. And he got off his horse and he walked in the house and he still thought it was a good idea the whole time. The whole way he wasn't convinced, this is probably a bad idea. I mean, that says a lot about him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he is, I mean, he's a mess. Uh, yeah. Willoughby. Very he's, narcissistic, I think. Yes. You know? Yeah, he's just like clinically, about him. <laughs> what? Like clinically, like. <laughs> yeah, I think in in a way, um, especially you know he's. I mean he's he's comes because he's heard that Marianne is dying, and and that seems like. Does he even ask how she is, or does she? <laughs> did we skip? That? I don't even remember. But he's just he he wants he simply wants to excuse himself. I mean he's he's mm-hmm. like a textbook abuser right because he's just kind of explaining his behavior um without really taking responsibility for it mm-hmm. hmm. yeah does it say um he does ask for god's sake tell me is she out of danger or is she not but you, i mean yeah, you're exactly yeah. right he doesn't he he spends the whole time justifying himself mm-hmm. think about what i was feeling i was in these debts i had this, uh-huh. you know, I needed the money and she made me write the letter and I wouldn't have gotten her money if I hadn't have done it. You know, like, so it is all about, you've got to understand how much I needed this money. Uh-huh. Yeah. And that, yeah. and I couldn't, I couldn't marry a poor girl. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. That's a great, ex- great excuse there. <laughs> um, But, you know, we, the, the idea of the, the concept of a villain got brought up. I don't know, at the beginning, you know, 30 minutes ago or something. And um, just how villainous would you say we are, we are meant, he, he, that he is? I mean, that he, they were supposed to see him. He is certainly, you know, narcissistic, as you said, Karen. He is um, selfish, self-absorbed. And uh, he makes some strange decisions, to put it that way. But is he, you know, are we... Even um, Eleanor even... It mentions the word horror when he walks in. So, you know, there are some, some references, some complex references like that here. But is he, is he meant to sort of be our... Honey, did you say Marianne's not the bad guy? Right. Is, what you is, saying he, earlier? The guy? is he the bad no. guy? I mean, I think absolutely yes. I, I, I probably have less sympathy for Willoughby than Eleanor does by the end of this conversation. So I, I'm, I, I'm with... Uh, I'm with Karen. I think he's just narcissistic and selfish. At best, he's selfish. There's so I do think that he is a bad, a bad, bad, bad guy. Is he the well, Karen? Is he the? I mean, well, I'll let you just answer the question before. Is he like the dastardly (laughs) villain? Yeah, I think he, I think he's, you know, he is based, again, this goes back to sort of the art of the novel and what Austin is doing. Mm-hmm. Um, she's drawing on a long tradition of archetypal villains and heroes, mm-hmm. but she's nuancing them and she's presenting, she's, she's creating a realism that didn't really exist or is just developing at this time in, um, in the growth of the novel as a genre. So mm-hmm. Willoughby is based on these kind of old stereotypes, but he is more humanized and and what that does 
for us as readers is, you know, in the scene, we get to see sort of the backstory to why he's come across as so villainous, yet he still is, you know, it's still sort of a cautionary tale, like, ladies, this is not the kind of guy you want to marry, um, you know, and maybe this is why he's this way, but still, he, he he's still a villain even to his wife as he comes and, mm. and speaks about her this way. Um, That's a great so, point. Yeah, so I, I mean, I, I just think he's he's a he's a he's a, a bad guy, but in a real in a psychologically and um, ontologically realistic way that's more reflective of real life as opposed to the old romances that mm. existed before the novel was developed. Mm. That's interesting. Do you know what what would what what did she consider her favorite books? Just out of curiosity, kind of a side note question. Do you know who Austin? Yeah, yeah. Um, yes. Um, one of her favorite um, authors was uh, Samuel Richardson, who wrote some of the early novels. Mm, yeah, and his works. Um, you know, he's considered the father of the English novel, actually, and his works um, are more sentimental and more didactic than Austen's. Um, and so she, I mean, she's definitely building on on him, but you know, she's making her art a little bit more sophisticated. Mm-hmm. Um, but then she also, I mean, she really admired um, the poetry of William Cooper, who was, mm-hmm. um, you know, wrote about nature and was tended. To Toward romanticism, but he wasn't a romantic. Um, those are the two off the top of my head that I know that she really loved and admired. Um, so, but I mean, she read all she read all the classics: um, yeah. Shakespeare, Milton. Where do you think that's the sophistication that you're talking about, and that we've kind of been discussing throughout the show? Where, where do you think that that came from? I mean, certainly it comes from her own genius. But how do you think that sort of coalesced in her genius from Richardson? And I mean, was it just that? she was reading Richardson in this poetry that you're mentioning and maybe some Shakespeare and, you know, the ancients and all of that just sort of coalesced with her genius. Or do you think there was some particular influence that, that generated that subtlety and, and the, the complexity? Well, uh, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, there were other female novelists who were starting to write some things like this, but again, they, they tended to be much rougher and and again more either more sentimental or more romantic capital R. Um, if that's I mean that's that really is the question. I I think she just what I think she was a genius and I think she mm-hmm. did something un, unprecedented building on the materials that came before her. And I honestly do not know when I look at the contemporary works of especially of other female writers um none of them were doing anything like this that i know of mm. so she really was a genius so in some ways she makes she kind of almost was like another shakespeare in some ways if she'd lived longer maybe she would have produced mm. more but that's just interesting to think about because i i mean when you read austin there's a lot of shakespeare like mm-hmm. it, it this sort of tone that in some of shakespeare's comedies and tragedies seems to show up especially in in certain moments, like I, I, some of the moments in this play remind me a lot of um, Much Ado and Twelfth Night. And see, she seems like she was pretty steeped in it. Um, but then, of course, Shakespeare was steeped in the people that came right before him. Mm-hmm. And so I guess geniuses become geniuses in, <laughs> for a lot of different reasons. So how we ever really figure that out is 
I guess if we could figure that out, we'd have more geniuses, right? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Let's, but one of the things that makes, one of the things that makes the complexity in this novels is that comparison that you brought up earlier, Edward and Willoughby. Because Marianne suggests that, you know, her instinct is, oh, Edward's just another Willoughby. And so we're talking about sort of the, the, the dastardly nature of Willoughby here. But then we, but then Edward himself is in his own sort of, he's got his own drama going on involving another woman who he's supposed to marry. If I was in a classroom, I guess this would be a great place to talk to kids about what are the differences between Edward and Willoughby, and they would start with the really obvious ones. We could do that if you want to. Um, that would be we, fun. Okay, let's do it then. So, what are the obvious different? What are the differences, obvious or not, between Willoughby and Edward? Then Heidi, I'll let her turn to you first because Karen said it was fun and you didn't. So then I get to pick on you first. <laughs> it's like I called on Neville instead of Hermione. <laughs> I, am, I love that I'm Neville in this scenario. It turns out to be a true hero. Um, so I. I mean, if this were my classroom, which it's not, it's your classroom. But if my, in my oh, class, we would start with what, how are they the same, mm-hmm. right? So um, there are some similarities that Marianne is absolutely right about in that mm-hmm. they both pursued women that they knew they could not have. And that ended up hurting those women. And that is an, a wrong and unkind and dishonorable thing to do. And so, and in in that way, they are the same. However, in much more important and deeper ways, they are completely, completely different. Hey, so, it's not time for differences yet. Oh, it's not. Well, that's what you asked. <laughs> no, I know. I'm just kidding. Go ahead. Yes. All right. So, um, I'm trying to transition to your question while also getting my own word in. So, how am I doing with that? <laughs> um, so, here's how they're different: is that. Edwards, the reason he can't have the woman he wants, Eleanor, is because he's keeping his word. He Mm -hmm. has made a promise to Lucy and it was wrong and dishonorable of him to pursue Eleanor. um, And that they both freely admit and even Edward admits, which we'll find out next week. I'm sorry about that. Um, But... (laughs) Logan, take it out. I don't want to get in trouble. But um, 200-year-old novel. I think we're fine. Right. Okay. Um, But we are seeing Edward and Willoughby's true metal in this particular reading. And they're contrasted right next to each other in parallel lines. Like here is Willoughby. He broke his word to every woman he's ever known. He was consistently selfish and self-serving. And on the other hand... Edward is honorable because he is giving up the woman he loves, who he never should have pursued, and we all admit that, but he's giving her up in order to keep his word. And that is an honorable thing to do, even in the face of public rejection and disgrace and losing his family. So for her to compare them, there are some ways that they're the same, but in the more important ways and kind of those heart ways, the character ways, the the men showing their true metal ways, they are profoundly different and Edward is better. So I guess we can end the show now. Well, other people (laughs) might have things to say. Not to mention that Willoughby seduced and abandoned uh, a woman and uh, and Edward didn't. (laughs) I, I... I am curious though, like, 
I, I, the, the, the similarities question is actually interesting. How do you mention that you would start there? What other similarities are there between them? Because I think, you know, the, 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 the differences in degree on those similarities might be where the, some of the nuance really comes from. Karen, can you, uh, would, do you have any other similarities in mind besides the one that Heidi just mentioned? Well, I think we've talked about this before, but I think not just in character characterization, but in the structure, the way both of them um, um, suddenly leave, right? Is Edward sudden? Mm. Yes. Um, And and so they're both sort of mysterious from the beginning. So I think this, you know, the structure sets up a lot of uh, parallels that we're supposed to connect um, even beyond the 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 backstories and the characterization. Well, and their place in society is somewhat similar, right? They're both dependent on yes. Uh, they're both dependent on these older women who can disinherit them at any time if they're not pleased with them. I'm super fascinated by that, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> by the, you know, like the the, uh, the Dashwoods, their father dies, and then. Here you have so in all these instances you have these the mothers or the older women who have the control of this money, at least in in the in the guys' cases, and and so it, it's it's a woman's world in a lot of ways. It's sort of ironic, right? the women have so much control over so much, even where they don't really have control over it. It's an, it's it's just interesting the way Jane Austen lays that out because of how much, for example, Edward's mother can control the situation. Mm-hmm. Even right. though, you know, women didn't have a lot of power. Um, but in these instances, they did. And so you've got these guys who are sort of forced to Dependent. decide how they're going yes. to respond to the dependencies that they're sort of forced into. The pro- I don't know enough about, I guess I don't know enough about how, how inheritances worked and how that, would have, what that, how that would have been looked at socially. Would they have been, I mean, would they have been pressured in some ways by the society to... I don't know. I mean, how would they have been pressured to respond to to a, a to a, like Edward's mother having control of their inheritance? Would they would he have been sort of pressured to be as you know do everything she said um, by the society around by all like by the other men and so forth, or would it have been more manly to sort of push back against her? That's a good question. It seems like the way they present her is that she expects to she expects to impose her will. Yes. Mm. I think money trumps sex and gender in in that day. Mm -hmm. Um, As hard as that is to sound, really. But but, I mean, you think that that there were female queens and um, just class and wealth really held a lot more power and sway um, up until, you know, I mean, it was the Victorian age really when, when things got, when, when sex and gender became uh, much more stratified, I think. And yet even in Downton Abbey, the rich older lady controlled a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it was, it's, it's, you know, with it, when we talk about it being a class-based society, it's such a cliche, but there really is significant meaning behind that phrase. It's true. 
And I suppose, <laughs> I suppose, uh, rich older ladies who don't want to share their money except on their terms is kind of a literary archetype as well. So. <laughs> or just, or just rich, rich people who don't want to share their money except. I, you know what? I don't know why I said literary. That's just a human thing. I it's think. a human it's archetype. Just, yeah. A human story. <laughs> um. Um, Karen, I think you were going to say something a minute ago and, and maybe you didn't get a chance to, did I misread the room? <laughs> maybe there was. What do I, I do with my hands? Yeah, no, <laughs> it's fine. Whatever it was, the thought is gone. I think we were still, we still about Willoughby and Edward. I think it was about the money actually. I think. Okay. Um, so yeah. And re- the, the other thing is remember, even in this class, when, when money and wealth, and status were so important. There was also sort of this obligation that was understood. Not that most people fulfilled it, but there was a there there was this belief in an obligation that those who had money and power and wealth had to set the example and the expectations for those below them. So it would be almost like an uh, an an expectation that these women, who older women, who had the money would use that power to chasten and discipline mm. those who are dependent yeah. on it. Mm. Okay. So given all of that, this is maybe one of those conversations that would be interesting to have with high school students or middle school students say, but do you think that given what we know so far through these chapters, Edward, <clears throat> Edward has made the right choice. With yeah. Lucy Steele, do you mean? Yeah, just sticking to what he's his you know his word, and I mean that yes. I, maybe maybe for us it's not as interesting a conversation to have, um, but I bet that would be a really interesting conversation just to hear what sixteen year old people would say mm. <laughs> to the choices given him there. Huh. That's a great point, David, because they don't necessarily have it. It takes a lot to be able to see through those societal eyes that Edward has given his word and the word of a gentleman is, is his bond. Like this is his character. This is the ultimate test of a man's character with what, if he will follow through on what he has told a woman. And that is why the question of whether or not Willoughby and Marianne were engaged dominates the whole first half of this book, mm. right? Were they ever really engaged? What what kind of, what, what words, physical words came out of Willoughby's mouth to mm. Marianne? Um, and, and that is so important in the first half of this novel, because once a man has given his word, he has to keep his word. And we no longer have that kind of gentleman's agreement. Um, I mean, that the vestiges of that linger, but... Um, yeah, you know, define the relationship, exactly. right? <laughs> yes, that's exactly right. I mean, but, but it doesn't hold the same weight that it did. Yeah in Edwardian England and that, or really in for most of human history. Um, and so that, I mean, even now you can break an engagement at the drop of a hat. The man can, the woman can, people get over it, right? But I mean, I know many people who've been in, engaged and then they just broke up like it was a regular breakup. Or, or divorce when you fall out of love, right? And yes. Fallen out of love with her, so. Right, but he will not break his word to this woman. And that is actually what proves his character and makes him a good man. That's how we know now at this point in the novel, that's the difference between Willoughby and Edward. Is this the section where there's that really interesting line about Eleanor? I think maybe it... I'm trying to remember exactly what it was. I'd never be able to find it right now. But that Eleanor thrilled, something like thrilled at at, at the recognition of his 
um, honor or it made her, yes. it, it made her respect him more despite the fact that, you know, they couldn't be together or something But she had, she had more respect for him now because, because oh, yeah. he kept his word. I think um, that's in that first chapter actually of this section. Um, yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about. And I, I noticed that too, that she, it makes her love him more that he won't break his word to Lucy because now she knows she's at least loved, loved a worthy man. Right. And he has left her and she knows that, which I go back and forth on that just personal preference, whether the fact that she feels so secure in his regard for her is a flaw or whether that's a good thing. I don't know. It's a minor point, but sometimes I'm kind of like, you can't know everything, Eleanor. (laughs) 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 Why not? I don't know. It just feels like super... That that to me feels... Again, this is a pure preference. It feels superhuman. In some ways, I feel like it would give her a little more weight if she... Like Doubt, one doubted him? About that. Yeah. If she was like, no, maybe he doesn't really... Love, I don't know. She just seems so... And not arrogant. That's not the... That, I don't mean that. I'd really just mean... Confident. It, yes. Or... <laughs> Like she just seems to know how he feels, even though he's never told her. So I don't know. Well, she is very perceptive about human nature. Definitely. That's definitely true. Although in some ways you would think even the most perceptive perceptive person might be inclined to um, think that somebody who they're interested in is more into them than they are. (laughs) Right, right. Yep. So to speak, just a little, a little, a little insecurity might add to the pathos of the character that Austin's building a little bit. Might, but the fact that she's so confident in it makes me kind of like, really. Mm. I think in that way, Eleanor is sort of an ideal, mm-hmm. um, you know, and mm. that I think we talked earlier about how it seems in Austin's life that Eleanor is really more is based in some ways on her older sister Cassandra. Mm. Um, and Jane is more, she's herself as more of a Marianne. Um, and, and so I think, you know, there may be some idealization going on of the character, Eleanor. That's that's interesting. Thing. That's yeah. Well, I can't find that line. Yeah. Me neither. I'm looking no, I for it. <laughs> maybe, maybe we're all just imagining the same line. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's real subtlety. She causes us to imagine the same lines. Oh, so, wow. <clears throat> so we've got, we have the comparison between Edward and Willoughby, and we've talked about you know the, the comparisons between Eleanor and Marianne. Those are some obvious ones, including how they both. We talked last week about how they both responded when they found out what was going on with the other, the men. Um, but then we have Colonel Brandon kind of lingering on the outside here, and I want to touch on this before we go this week uh, because obviously he comes into focus a little bit more as the book concludes. Um, so. I want to bring him into this this to, as a kind of triumvirate of men to compare here. So we've got Willoughby and Edward who we've been comparing and then there's Colonel Brandon. And what is the primary... I mean, where would you see as the primary similarity and the primary difference between Colonel Brandon and these other two guys? Um, Karen, I'll let you answer that one first since I asked Heidi first last time about that. So you can answer that either way if you have one in mind first, a similarity or a difference. Um, and just touch on this before we go. Well, he's definitely set up as being, you know, not the dashing romantic suitor because of his age and his, um, you know, previous attachment uh, and 
flannel coat or whatever. <laughs> so yeah, I was. A, I gotta admit, I was a little offended by the the, the taking down of the flannel. <laughs> um. So yeah. So so he's he's set up. We're supposed to. He's not the typical romantic hero. So that sets him apart, definitely. And what, do you see any similarities that that were that are you know? I mean, if what makes him attractive in, in the same way that Willoughby and I mean, are there any? Is he attractive in the same way, or is is his is the attraction of Colonel Brandon what makes him attractive to readers or to the characters that he is so different than these other guys? Well, I don't know that he is that attract. I mean, I think he, he comes across as. Um, um, I mean, this word wasn't used then, but it's still the, I mean, what, what we mean when we say someone is cool, um, he's not that, you know, he's, he's mm, earnest right. and he's attentive. He tries a little too hard. And those are, the, you know, we, that's, that's something that can be very off putting, um, for many people. And so I think that's what, I think he's mm. that way um, at first. He's it's he's too too nice. He is a real. He's a nice guy. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it is. That's interesting that you say that because at first it does seem like, come on, man. It's like he's too nice. And then as the story goes on, his sort of in contrast with the other characters, especially mm-hmm. Willoughby, his sense of honorableness and mm-hmm. that his sense of honor, and then that that nice guy persona becomes more appealing because yes. of the contrast with yes. Willoughby especially. And to some degree, Edward, who we don't... Edward never really lets us get to know him. Mm-hmm. I feel like we know Brandon better because he is earnest, as you said. And because he was played by Alan Rickman. Hi, <laughs> 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 Heidi, what about you? Where, where uh, Can you think? add him into this triumvirate? Right. Or make so, it a triumvirate, I guess. Right, make it a triumvirate. Um, he is the actual like real man of the story mm-hmm. he's he is because uh, he wears flannel he wears flannel right <laughs> flannel is hot um it's not really i mean it is like literally hot yeah That's it's warm it's so <laughs> it keeps you warm um um yeah i i'm with karen he's not he doesn't start out as cool like i love all these temperature words we're using um but <laughs> He, as the story unfolds, he does have this tragic backstory, and that's always very attractive to women. Um, and he is always paying attention. That's why I love so much about Colonel Brandon, is he mm. he's he's pays attention and he acts on what he notices. And and by the end of the story, that there's so much going on in any given room in this story, <laughs> right? There's so much subtext. There's so many undercurrents of emotion. And Colonel Brandon seems to kind of be aware of them all and have some kind of plan to make things right. Hmm. And for somebody like Marianne, that is... I mean, whether, that's what she needs. That's what she looks for in her sister. That's, I mean, she, Colonel Brandon is like the male counterpoint of Eleanor. Mm. And uh, so she goes from oh. this secure relationship with her sister to this man who can provide everything that Eleanor was and he can, you know, protect and, and counsel and care for her. Plus, he also has this really cool, tragic backstory, by the way. So <laughs> that makes him a, a true romantic hero. By the end of the book, though, he slowly unfolds. Karen, like do you want to take Eleanor issue does. with anything yeah. that she's saying? 
No, I, 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 I don't want to, uh, I don't really. I just thought maybe we want to get an argument here before the show. (laughs) No, no. I think we just went a little ahead of the reading. Yeah. 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 Yeah, We did. Yeah. Yeah. But no, I, I, one more. It'll it'll all be revealed. Yeah. If someone made it all this far, they probably have a hint (laughs) of what's going on or they've just looked it up on Wikipedia already because they wanted to find out. Um, Well, this was fun. Thank you both for being here. And as you mentioned, Karen, we will discuss the last I guess five, six chapters, six chapters of the book uh, next week. And then, then after that, we'll answer your questions, listener questions. I'm sure there'll be, I mean, I've seen lots of questions already being posted on the Facebook page. So we'll create a thread where those can kind of get collected and put in a specific place. Um, and uh, I think that will be a, I think that will be a really good one. There's, there's lots of, there's so much we haven't even touched on that. I'm sure the questions will, will, will give us a chance to, to touch on those things. Do you, either of you want to offer any final thoughts, Heidi, you want to go first? I just want to say thank you to Jesse Brown, um, who has in every way made the <laughs> Facebook group very, very, very interesting this week. Yeah, she's lots of weird Photoshop, uh, Photoshop things going. I've never on. been made into Batman before, <laughs> so that was. So if you're not in the Facebook group, yep. people have to go join and check you, that you've out. You've got to go join the Facebook group and and see the the creations of Jesse. <laughs> Karen, do you want do you want any final thoughts? Anything you want to add? Anything you're well, looking for? My final thought is that I need to um, check out that Facebook page and get caught up on that. That sounds great. So <laughs> I, I encourage everyone else to do that as well. <laughs> <laughs> it might take you a little while. Um, there's been lots of great conversation. And if you want to join the conversation, of course, just as a reminder, you can go into Facebook and then all you got to do is type in Close Reads Podcast Discussion Group or just Close Reads Podcast and it will show up and you can join that. And it's, uh, You'll have to click join and we'll, we'll let you in. Um, and then, of course, as I mentioned earlier, you can check out the, the bonus podcast we're doing for the Patreon supporters. Uh, the first one was, as I mentioned, the conversation on Hemingway's A Clean, Well-Lighted Room, which is a very different story than Sense and Sensibility, for the record. <laughs> but if you, want to, uh, if you want to dive into that with us... And we discussed a lot about what makes Hemingway Hemingway and why people have a hard time, but why we like him. Karen, actually, I'll ask you, do you like Hemingway? Um, I haven't read a lot of Hemingway, I, but I, I like him. I mean, I'm not... Uh, much of an Americanist. I, I remember that story. It's pretty. It's pretty good. It's, I really like it. So, um, yeah. I, you know, why did the chicken cross the road? According to Hemingway, <laughs> something. Do you know this one? <laughs> tell it. Tell it. Uh, oh, oh, it's so great. There's there's a whole bunch of them for every author. Why did the chicken cross the road? And so different authors give an- different answers. And Hemingway's is something like um, to. Because he was alone in the rain or something, <laughs> dying or something. So, see, I, I botched it, but it's really funny. He was alone in the rain, <laughs> dying, and there was probably a bar on the other he side. He was probably yeah. drinking <laughs> along the way. <laughs> well, yeah. So we did we did discuss uh, at some length about what Hemingway's doing in his work and uh, the ideas that he's exploring and where they came from, and and then some of those some of the people that he influenced. And so we we dove into that. So if you're not a Hemingway fan, then we tried to. Um, you know, get into why he's difficult. Demystify him a little bit, which is really fun. Great conversation. Yeah, we had a good time. Okay, so there's that. And then um, we've got lots of other content. We're going to be talking about Othello here soon on The Plays of Thing. And of course, every day we've got the daily poem. Um, Today's poem was by A.E. Stallings, who I have been obsessed with her book. So if you're interested in that, check out her book, Like. Anyway, that's that's, uh, we've got lots of great content. Karen, what do you want to plug? 
Oh, uh, I, I really don't have, I don't think I have anything to plug. I'm just like mired follow down Car- like, follow writing Car- deadlines. What? <laughs> follow Karen on Twitter. Follow me on Twitter. There you go. That's where all, all my news is. Make sure you buy her books. Where's the best place to buy your books? Where do you tell people? I mean, there's Amazon, of course, but is, is that the best place yeah. for you? Um, I mean, Amazon is great, but if you're someone who likes to support um, independent bookstores, then Hearts and Minds Books in um, Pennsylvania is a great place. They usually have a, a discount on the books they carry, including mine. So I would check awesome. them out. Um, they're fantastic. Big Hearts supporters. and Minds. Hearts and Minds. Yeah. Awesome. All right. All right. Well, for Karen and for Heidi and for all of us here at the Close Reads Podcast Network, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. We will be back next week to finish discussing Sense and Sensibility. And in the meantime, happy reading. Mm-hmm.